Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. This is going to be a very exciting show. Mark has some amazing people here as guests, and we're going to discover some pretty fascinating information about who actually discovered our country. So I'm going to bring Mark on now, hopefully. Hi, Mark. Are you there? I am here. I'm ready for the next two hours. How are you doing? (laughs) Doing fine, doing fine. Good. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, it's uh, been uh, a rough week. If you know the Mason-Dixon line's about a forty-five minute drive from me, but you know, for the last week I've been thinking about uh, you know, vacationing in Alaska in the middle of winter uh, for warmer temperatures. That are, <laughs> We, you know, we had a, a pretty rough time in the on the East Coast, but it wasn't nearly as bad as some, some areas. It was it was a brutal week. Yeah, I, I I've got spring here, so I'm like, because it it's good here. <laughs> I'm usually the one with four feet of snow and all sorts of stuff, but not today. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's uh, been about seventy degree uh, swing over the last couple of days. It's it's very nice. So yeah, might as well uh, get started. Uh, you know, we have to uh, pack a lot of information into uh, two hours. So we might as well bring on our guests so we can cover their two exciting books. Uh, this is, I think, going to be groundbreaking information for Nightlight. Um, yeah, and we also need to say happy birthday to Lori, one of our guests. So, but, um, you know, we're, uh, Nightlight is celebrating the uh, Chinese New Year, so uh, we're going to have a fascinating discussion about the Chinese being in pre-Columbian America. 
and we have Mark and Lori Nicholas uh, as our guests. They have uh, lectured internationally about their books, Chasing Dragons, and Lori's new book, To the Gates of Feng Tu. Um, you know, we even met uh, at the Midwestern Epigraphic Society conference a few years ago. Uh, it's you know, great to have friends as our guests. So, um, and their books can be found at Amazon.com. So, let's welcome Mark and Lori Nicholas to Nightlight. H- how how are you doing, Mark and Lori? Doing good. We're fine here. Good, good, good. Yeah. yeah so our temperature just finally came up too. Good. Maybe the uh, groundhog is going to be accurate this year. It's been a long okay. winter. <laughs> but yeah, as uh, you know, we read your first book, Chasing Dragons. Uh, you know, see how uh, the gates of Feng Two. Uh, grew out of it. So uh, maybe you should start with how this project got started and kept expanding. So let's go back to some of the early days of writing Chasing Dragons. Okay, this is Mark here. I guess that would be me. Uh, Started in year 2004, uh, just reading a local uh, paper, an article in local paper about a mystery. Uh, it was a uh, a rock painting called the Piasaw near St. Louis. Uh-huh. And uh, I got thinking about it, and uh, I, uh, within just a few days, I saw Gavin Menzies on television talking about Chinese exploration of the world. And he had said he had a book, uh, you know, uh, 1421 when uh, China discovered America. And uh, I got thinking maybe there was a connection with the pious on the Chinese because the colors and the general description of this gigantic rock painting in um, Illinois across from St. Louis sounded a little bit Chinese. So I started researching and found out it was very Chinese. And the more we researched it, the more commonality we found between this rock painting in Illinois. It was overlooking the Mississippi River, by the way. And uh, uh-huh. uh, Chinese dragon or long is what the Chinese call it. And so we just started accumulating evidence and parallels. And um, out of the blue, we got a phone call from a William Wu uh, from Washington University who was aware of a call for papers in uh, Nanjing, uh, Nanjing, China. It was a 600th anniversary of the launching of the great Chinese, uh, the great Ming fleet. And he wanted us to uh, write a research paper and maybe present it. This, again, this was just out of the blue. We were not expecting this. Uh, we'd had previously had a short 500 word article in a local hunting and fishing magazine called Outdoor Guide. And uh, uh, Mr. Wu became aware of this and he had some connections in China. It turned out his father was a general, by the way. Um, so there were some connections there. Anyway, he set us up, and before we knew what happened, we were in Nanjing, China, delivering a research paper about uh, the, uh, the how it was likely that the, the Piasaw 
was in fact a uh, a Chinese dragon that had been erected by um, uh, the men of the Chinese fleet to mark where they had been. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that original paper, it was pretty well accepted in China. Here, nobody wants to talk about it. But uh, after that, we just kept researching, and we just have continually found more and more information on on the subject. It was pretty funny in 2005 when we went to Nanjing. About all we could say in Mandarin was counting to ten, please, thank you, and I have no idea what you're saying. (laughs) And, okay, so... You know, you present your paper when mm-hmm. you come back uh, to the states. Uh, you receive this manuscript in the mail. So, mm-hmm. what you, know, you document that? Uh, you know. How did that keep you moving forward in your research? Well, uh, in August, we had gone in July. In August, we found a book that mentioned this very, very old book uh, mm-hmm. written by a man named Luo Madang. And we started contacting people because there was no way for us to find it in the United States. And the scene that I had read out of it, I know how messed up translations can get. Just, I, I've always been amused by that. And so we put word out, including to Mr. Wu and friends of Mr. Wu, that we really needed to see a copy of this book because we thought the scene that we saw in this other book didn't sound like craziness like it had been uh, thought to be but sounded more like a description of Native Americans and so it took till February of the next year and we knew there was this one spot everybody agreed on that was the last spot this great explorer who was leading this fleet was known to have been so I was the at-home mom. I I started working on this and digging and looking through dictionaries, and I tried to find that place, some chapter that mentions that particular place, and that was Mecca because the leader of the last thing they that everyone absolutely agrees on is that the leader of this expedition, the last thing they know he did, they did for certain was go on Hajj. And so I found that was about chapter 86, and I worked towards the end of the book from there. Like I said, I was learning Mandarin from just scratch as I went along and digging and digging and digging. And I found someone Chinese to check some of the things I was looking at, and suddenly they were agreeing with me, and here I am, you know, a stay-at-home mom who's found one of the craziest secrets I could possibly imagine. I can imagine a lot. 
I write. I can imagine a lot. But this was just mind-blowing. And you you do note in Chasing Dragons that this epic... uh, you know the manuscript mm-hmm. was uh, you know, very rare to survive. Uh, for you know, what were the reasons why this manuscript uh, wasn't in uh, wasn't printed uh, more frequently? And distributed throughout the uh, country. It seems like it would be something of uh, great national pride. Well, at that point, it was published uh, more than 100 years after the voyages. And the stuff in it was so completely outside what people understood that they thought it was a vision of the underworld because it was so just incomprehensible. And, you know, like Beowulf, it was popular when it came out, but people just forgot about it. And so, you know, it went out of print. Fewer and fewer copies of it uh, endured. Books wear out. And until there was maybe one copy left, like I said, like Beowulf. And then people started kind of finding it again. It was very strange. I think a copy of it ended up in an American library. Somebody brought it back from China who had visited China, and it went on from there. And Morgan, Lori, uh, you also mentioned that there was a um, uh, book burning at, at one point as well. Okay. Well, um, there were, at the end of the big voyages, there was seven sets mm-hmm. of voyages. And at the end of them, uh, there was just a sudden attitude change. And they had a few of the great ships from this fleet left. They burned them at anchor. They just decided to totally shut China off, put a wall around it mentally, physically, make it illegal to build big ships like this, and made it incredibly restricted to leave the country or learn a foreign language or teach Chinese to an outsider. And they decided that this was this these these voyages had been such a um, financial. It was the big um, public story, big financial mistake. So they decided, well, to this was so embarrassing and such a financial mistake. We're going to even burn all the records. We'll burn what's left of the ships at anchor. We'll make it illegal for anybody to ever do this again, and just forget it ever happened. Um, which is a really weird thing for a country that had been a leader in a whole lot of technical areas like navigation, uh, 
shipbuilding and weaponry and timekeeping, they just suddenly decided it was like people looking around at their computers today saying, let's throw these all in the trash and go back to the 1800s with horses and wagons, no cars, no phones. It was that big a backward jump. Okay. So, yeah. And, you know, we are going to look you know, over the next hour and a half or so, you know, we are going to look at you know, uh, this was a major uh, uh, achievement mm-hmm. in naval history. Um, you know, let, let's. Okay, you already mentioned that there were seven voyages. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there, there were some staggering numbers uh, that are mentioned in uh, To the Gates of Feng Tu. Uh, I mean, how, how many ships and sailors went out on these voyages? Okay, this is Mark. Now, the voyages began in 1405 under Admiral Zheng He who is best known in English as Sinbad. Okay, now that gets interesting. Uh, The voyages lasted until uh, 1434. Uh, There was about 30,000 sailors involved, and uh, there were several hundred ships, including uh, a few dozen uh, really large ships that they called treasure ships or Baochuans. They were about 400 feet long. They were about mm-hmm. okay. We had a little computer glitch here, but they they were about 400 feet long, and they formed the uh, the, the center of each uh, fleet. It was kind of like a modern battle group with an aircraft carrier in the middle. But you had this giant ship in the middle, and it was surrounded by all the supply ships and the sporting ships, the troop ships, or what they call the the matrons or the horse ships. And so each of these fleets were basically independent, and they were assigned different parts of the world to explore. And like I said, there were basically seven different voyages of uh, world exploration between uh, 1405 and 1434. Uh, Menzies has got two books, Gavin Menzies, 1421, and the other book was 1434. And uh, they really go well with uh, what Laurie has found in her translation. Mm-hmm. So I hope I answered your question. There were several hundred ships, about 30,000 men. Uh, they were off and on voyaging for about 30 years. Uh, like I said, the larger ships were about 400 feet long. Uh, Columbus's entire fleet would have just sat on the deck of one of these. They had watertight compartments, advanced navigation. They were about 400 years ahead of what the Europeans had at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the, the uh, information that's coming up in the Lori's translation is you know, just really uh, astonishing naval engineering. But um, it, it, when you know, we start lo- uh, uh, looking at To the Gates of Feng Tu, um, Lori, you're starting the translation on pay- or, uh, uh, chapter 86, uh-huh. and they're in uh, Venice. So yeah. there, there's where we open up. Um, you know, 
why are, uh, what's going on in Venice to you know, bring the Chinese there? They have a meeting with the Doge. Uh, you know, let's get the audience caught up with, you know, uh, well, their, their, well, their appearance in, in the uh, Bay of Venice and, you know, we'll uh, move the, the uh, flotilla to North America in a few minutes. Well, um, what was happening was everybody literally around the world knew about Venice. The the, mm-hmm. the Muslims, the the Arab trade seafarers who were going back and forth to India, all of these people knew about Venice. It was the center of commerce. And so the Chinese said, center of commerce, center of the world. Okay, we're going there. They went there, and they're there during Carnival, which is right actually at this time of year. And, you know, things were pretty crazy. There was a vast amount of partying going on. The Chinese were a little kind of overwhelmed. They were wondering if the people rioted often. And they're in the midst of this. And the party's interrupted by a party crasher. And this party crasher was a papal legate, a representative of the Pope. He picked them all up and said, okay, we're going to go over this way. We're going to Rome. And they thought that was kind of bizarre. They kind of considered the Pope a backwater patriarch. They they thought, you know, money would be the center, not religion. Um, I mean, they invented capitalism. Of course, they're not that. And after a little while there, they, and after their leader got done with Hajj, which is also right at this time of year, uh, they got their ships together, and they asked the Venetians, they asked the Romans, they asked the the Muslims, the Mamluk Empire sultans, police over there, and they said, is there more West? And they said, nothing worthy of your time. Uh, nothing worth the mention is beyond the Mediterranean. They said, okay, but we're going to go on. And so they headed out, rode the prevailing currents and winds. I mean, if you want to know kind of the track they took, you look and watch a hurricane form off Africa, and they just followed that same river of wind and water, traveled the currents up to... At what's actually a natural lull point between a current that comes south and a current that comes north, and ended up at Cape Breton, pretty much the same place in Canada as we found Viking settlement ruins that Cape on Cape Breton, because it's just that natural eddy point right at the mouth of the St. Lawrence. Mm-hmm. From there, um, they looked around, and they sent their people up a major river because they had met people there who came and said, hey, big ship, this is kind of strange. Who are you? And they had had 
since the 1420s. You know, the, the conversation yeah. about the book 1421 talks a lot about that. They had had people who had basically mapped the edges of the continent, but they were now following rumors inland. They came up to Florence through the Great Lakes, which they described as freshwater seas, and then down the rivers to a river that they said astonished them because it looked like the Yangtze. I've seen both. It does. The Mississippi, this huge river, does look almost identical to some of the less developed parts of the Yangtze. And there they went to the city that they had heard about. All over, wherever they made con- you know, contact with people on this continent, they'd heard about this huge center of religion and civilization up in this upper part of this set of continents that was that they called thing too and they went there and that's that the rest of those last 15 chapters describe okay, well, this city Lori the point you make that you just verbally made about the Great Lakes were described as a freshwater sea Okay, that makes a lot of sense in in your um, translation, you do have uh, some discussions about you know, the, the the dense fog. Okay, you know, I I can picture that they happening. Accidentally in the vegetation. Um, North America in the fog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of their ships ran aground. They said, "Whoop, we got here." <laughs> yeah, oh, it, it was. It, it, you know, all, all the the descriptions sound very plausible, and you know, they, you know um, um, Wang Ming uh, begins a southward walk. To fulfill his mission, okay. Uh, you know, the Mississippi River would be south of the Great Lakes. All, all, all this stuff is adding up. So, but um, when you know, you begin translating uh, Wang uh, Ming's. Uh, it, Descriptions of the the city he encounters. Uh, you know, I think we you know we'll see a lot of parallels with you know what we know now is Cahokia. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what what are some of the descriptions that he? Uh, states about this walled city? Well, that's where it kind of really started blowing my mind. Because Mm -hmm. he started talking about this looks like this constellation and this is at this point and this is at the point where this star is at this point. And I went and I hunted down the constellation. And 
that was what blew my mind. The constellation was laid out exactly in the shape of Cahokia, and major stars around it marked where each of these major mounds was located. Just exactly. And the poem at the beginning of the chapter said, the earth and the sky reflect each other. It said, this is a match to this constellation. And then they started talking about what the people looked like and what they dressed like. And the creatures and the food. And as I said, I just, it was unreal. Because I've, I've made lists, and they're like 60 or 70, 80 exact matches of everything that was going on, things you can find in the archaeological record. And you it's statistically impossible to guess that well. And when the book came out in 1587, Europeans didn't even know Cahokia had existed. They hadn't even mapped the layout of the mounds at that point. It was bizarre. I mean, they couldn't have known that. They couldn't have known any of this stuff. And the more I looked, the more things I kept finding, and it kept, you know, Match after match after match after match after match. And it just got stranger and stranger and more correct and more And I'm sitting here looking at this book and saying, this is impossible to be anything but not a fantasy. This is not a picture of the underworld. They're scary people. But these are real people I'm looking at. This is a real culture. I can find historical records that match this. The archae- I mean, there's stuff in here that explains why archaeologists can't make sense of this or that or the other thing. And I was just stunned. Well, and Lori, uh, you know, throughout the early stages of thing two, uh, many of the scenes take place at this uh, plaza. And then mm-hmm. there's like this, this uh, what was called a mountain in the mm-hmm. center of the plaza. Okay. The man-made mountain uh, with only one way up or one way down. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, that needs some uh, discussion. Do do we find that at Cahokia? Yeah. Um, Cahokia is a large earthen mound that the base of which is broader across uh They call it Monk's Mound now. And it's bigger around the bottom. It covers more acreage than the Great Pyramid at Giza. And it is 
two, maybe you could say two and a half levels, where you have you come up on uh, first level. There's a large open space. Then you come up to the top, and it's a flat area. There's a slight dip area to one side. Uh, and in the book, it talks about okay, you come up onto the you come up this stairway, and on its first level, there's two buildings, and if you look at drawings done from archaeological examination, the buildings are there. And they said, now you come up to the top, there's this huge place with a slight lower to one side where this god chief lives, and his wife lives on this little piece, his primary wife lives on this little spot to one side. And you could sit there reading the book and walk from spot to spot and wherever you stop that the book says something is here's a mound that we know that there was multiple large buildings two large buildings on in the book it says there are two large buildings here the temple is this and the temple is that over here is this large round circular place that has to do with the sky and there's Woodhenge which is a circle uh, kind of a astronomical observation point, you know, calendar like Stonehenge, but it's wood. And it and in the map it's in the same position as Corona Borealis. Everything place after place after place matches. Description after description matches. Practices we know were down south described by Hernando de Soto and his men, the people keeping track of that. Um, practices and gods being worshipped were Mayan gods. And they talk about going to these huge plains farther out west and hunting thousands upon thousands of these creatures somewhat like water buffalo. And, and just every page there was more that were where they where they were supposed to be that nobody knew until you saw this and then it made complete sense and you could back up every single bit of it in somebody's history book or a legend uh, by the native people the Osage who built this or archaeologists did. Okay, and, 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 uh, Lori, there's you know this wooden palisade. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they talk about uh, that it looked like stone, but wasn't stone, and we know that it was plastered. Yeah, and you know that that seems you know, pretty typical of uh, native engineering of. Uh, wood hinges uh, found but, at Fort Ancient as well. You have palisades, uh, and like the Fort Ancient era of um, and the uh, Ohio River Valley. Uh, but uh, in other places around the world, you have uh, stone being used. At Machu Picchu or Puma Punku, uh, so 
there don't seem to be a, a whole lot of um, other uh, you know, cities with this kind of extensive use of wood. Mm-hmm. So, so I, you know, the accurate the accuracy of these descriptions seems to rule out an awful lot of places. So, so I, 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 this, it, yeah. I just thought your descript the the descriptions in this uh, journal seem to be very accurate um, about. You know, this time period that we are just learning a, a lot about. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they described animals that, you know, even if you talk forward agent, they talk about animals like a particular type of rattlesnake that is only in this one area. It's not over in Ohio. It's not down south. It's called uh, Massasagua rattlesnake has a very particular sound of its rattle. It instead of, you know, the rattle that you think of as a rattle, it's this much faster buzz and they hmm. can absolutely dead on describe it. And it just it's crazy. Just you it, go on. Every well, time there's it, something it, new you can find it in the record. Yeah, and Lori also mentioned uh, buffalo. Are there are there buffalo in Mesoamerica or South America, elsewhere in in the world? I just thought uh, buffalo were pretty pretty much just an American animal. The only other excuse me, this mark. The only other place you would have found bison um, is. There was a few left in the forests of Poland and uh, extreme western Russia. They're still there today, and they're actually mixed with American bison now. But the only ones in the world would be, like I said, uh, in those forests in Poland and Russia or in North America. That would be Canada, the United States, and parts of Mexico. That was it. And you don't have, those, you don't have rattlesnakes like that there. That you don't have persimmons in Poland, and well, you don't and have the Earth in pyramids. But uh, the, the the Chinese Navy is not going to be sailing into Poland either, so we can rule no, out. No, it's kind of inaccessible. Yeah. So so uh, <laughs> when you know we the take into consideration, you know when we take take into consideration Mark's statement about you know just. A little bit of Russia uh, and you know, North America is where, and in Canada and um, United States, we're still down to only a couple places that could even match these uh, descriptions that are appearing in this journal. So it's you know, your translation just really seem like an accurate recreation of what was going on south of the Great Lakes. And, and you know, there were you know, some other things like this. Um, the, uh, this 
on page 62, you mentioned this earthen dike and you know, did, did some uh, research in another book on Cahokia. And, and there it is a, a uh, uh, like earthen feature in w- one of the enclosures at Cahokia. It's called the Rattlesnake Causeway. Uh-huh. I, I was like, I, I don't know if that that's the same same uh, geographic. You know, well, it's, I think that but, might like, be like a little dip, but you're talking. There but a, there is a causeway outside of um, the main plaza area. So mm-hmm. yes, it it's there. You know, I, I I was just and it, that that was just something I I don't know it, you know if that's an an exact correlation, but it, it just struck me as something that is within the realms of possibility of these uh, uh, a- accurate descriptions, and you know, there was uh, uh, the culture seems like it. Was you know pretty sophisticated in engineering. Uh, they there was a bridge. Um, there was uh, some dental uh, work being done on some people. Um, Yes, modification. Mm Mhm. Yeah, they talked about that they had these these sharpened and pointed teeth and these tooth caps. And this is something else that we know is in the archaeological record, both in the Americas and more so in Mexico and Mesoamerica. And this was a upper class thing. This, yeah, you would see nobility doing this. I mean, they had the money and the time and wherewithal to be doing this. Whereas everybody else is just working, just getting by. Yeah, uh, uh, boy, there's uh, s- several references to the ex- ex- extensive um, mm-hmm. neighborhoods built outside of the Palisades. Um, oh yeah. You know, I'm looking at and uh, did, did some research from Ancient American edition number 112, and there's an article on um, excavations uh, you know, between Cahokia and uh, St. Louis and St. Yeah. Yeah, 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 right. And it, it seems like there were even more homes and neighborhoods in this area than previously thought. So that's a, a, another parallel. And uh, you, know, you live in in the uh, vicinity. Uh, ha- have yep. you uh, been out there to see the digs going on, or you know, re- reading a little bit more in the local papers about what's um, 
being unearthed? Well, not only that, we've seen material as far south as locally um, that, well, Mark, why don't you tell him about um, what you found in the local creek? Oh, um, okay, yeah, there's a, we're on the uh, Missouri side. Actually, we're on the edge of the Ozarks, so we're in real hilly country. But as you go towards St. Louis and cross the river, it's absolutely flat. Um, and if you re- researched on each St. Louis and all that, for miles and miles up and down the river, it was just densely populated. It was just an incredible More number More than of around people. London at the same time. Yeah. Okay, now locally I have found, uh, what, four or five conch shells in a local creek that were probably burial goods. Uh, Lori had a, what, you had a picture of a... Uh, well, of a of a of a, a figurine that was found in a local cave. I've actually that, seen it. Okay, that is very similar to some of the, the 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 statuettes of some of the Mayan gods. It was probably a locally produced uh, version of a Mayan god for sale. And the neighbor. Uh, the neighbor has some remains of what they call a uh, a bean pot, and uh, researchers in the last few years have identified the beans that were in those pots as chocolate there was a trade in chocolate up and down the river it's easy to transport it once you dry it and in the fun of that it it this ready quantity it was being used as money mm-hmm. and if all else fails you could eat it it was chocolate so even as as we are we're like 30 to 40 miles south of Cahokia on the other side of the river there is still there was still a very dense population here, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of trade goods. So this this whole society was as big, if not bigger than, more densely populated than the greater metropolitan area around St. Louis now, and as heavily, if not more heavily, farmed than it's been. You know even to this day. I mean, everybody here, they didn't have to have major roads. They had, there are creeks, deep creeks and streams everywhere. You could have gotten anywhere you wanted to just as fast, almost as fast as a modern highway, or at least compared to walking or going across country. Because you could go by boat, and they they had rowers. They were going up and down the rivers. Uh, if you got to all the way to the sea, they had gigantic canoes that were big enough to go to the islands in the Caribbean. I mean, evidence has been found of them. Uh, carvings of, you know, boats and ships and so on. And the oral tradition... They talk about going back and forth and and the gods and the words that they spoke and the legends. The more you look, as I keep saying, the more you find the same. Okay. I don't know. Did we, answer, did we actually answer your question there? We, we kind of digressed on many things. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm content. <laughs> and yeah, and you know, there are also uh, interesting points brought up about the uh, 
face painting, some you know, mm-hmm. tattoos. Oh, the- yeah, there's uh, all, all that just, uh, well, I think there were like seven different colors of oh, yeah. uh, 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 facial paints in the uh, um, figure eight on page 43 really looks like um, information right out of uh, the images that uh, Dr. Greg Little uses in his uh, book, Path of Souls, that we discussed uh, gee, what five, four or five months ago with him. Uh, so oh, it, it, yeah, that that, that was uh, another accuracy I thought was um, uh, really fascinating. Uh, yeah, if you, know, you look but, at the effigy pots that were used to care, contain uh, and preserve cremated remains, the 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 tattooing style is mm-hmm. from these areas matches these descriptions when they found. Further south, statues uh, of Mississippian people, and all these things. Again, the descriptions match. It's, yeah, they really. It, 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 it's you know really uh, <laughs> a, a, a fascinating book, and, and you know it's um, just do a. You know, ch- change course uh, briefly. Um, okay. I don't know, it, it, like when you know, I was in uh, college and did, you know, do those English survey classes, and you know, there, uh, there uh, really is a big difference. You know, just in the 300 years <clears throat> or uh, 250 years or so uh, between. Chaucer and Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, Chaucer does require a little bit of translating. Um, I have. I, I'd be total. I, I'd still be trying to get to <laughs> figuring out the first first word in uh, doing this uh, exercise. That you spent. Many years trying to figure out. I, 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 I'm just astounded just in this feat that you did. It's, so, you know, let's talk a little bit, um, you know, with the audience about the uh, challenges that um, you know, an exercise like this you know, was really just a huge undertaking. Uh, like, are, are you fluent in Chinese, or I, I, how did you get involved in translating? Well, um, let's go back to me being a little girl. When okay. I was a little girl, I was about seven, and I saw the move, uh, a cart- an anime movie, Monkey King, and I fell in love with Asia. And so when I went with Mark in 2005, to Nanjing, we went looking for something to bring home to our daughters, and I saw a book, a children's book on Monkey King. And I said, okay, well, it's got, let's start with this. You know, if we can find this book, and even, I, mean, I said, I'm going to 
put this into English so that I can read this to my daughters. And then we found out that this book existed. And so I started teaching myself, bought a pile of dictionaries, and started teaching myself using, translating this children's book. And then I kept going with that. And then I started finding websites that were Chinese websites, and happy me, Chrome will do a certain amount of translation. And I started digging, I started realizing these websites are using quotes of old books. I can find what it used to mean. And so I started piling up translations, and I started putting them into this dictionary. And I really, I've been, there's not a school anywhere near me where I could learn uh, literary Mandarin. And nobody in China speaks it. And I kept working on learning this and teaching myself as I went. And since I didn't know what I didn't know, I knew I didn't know things. I was willing to look and to dig. I, I know I can't do this perfectly, but I said, if I can do this right, I can do this in a way that if I get criticized on how I did something, it'll only make it better. It won't blow up in my face. And so I kept going from there. Uh, I've got a strangely wired brain, and I find out later that it's perfect. (laughs) Yeah, it's perfect for learning Mandarin, especially archaic Mandarin. I'm dyslexic, and... I always knew I wasn't adult, but my brain could really latch on to this. And I kind of, being dyslexic, I kind of delight in impossible things because I was always told, well, you can't, and you're not able. And I said, well, I know what I can't do. Let's find out what I can. And so I went after this. And that's 14 years of past. And since okay. I said people looking at me and going, well, you're a loser, I didn't care what they thought. I just went after it anyway. Okay. There's uh, quite a few pages of footnotes. At 1,687 footnotes. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to make sure I could prove what I was saying. Yeah, like I said, uh, let's be able to back up. If yeah. I made a crazy claim, I I looked for somewhere where I could back it up. No, and, 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 and okay, okay. go ahead. Oh, that's okay. I'm done. Okay, I was just going to say, and you know, there there, there are some, uh, you know, the you know, couple samples of where. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you do have you know this um, you know the Chinese character could could mean this word or uh, this word so, and you're trying to find the best 
phrase to uh, fit into the translation. So, you know, how did, how did that go? That, that, that seems like it would be a, a challenge for, like, a, a non-native speaker picking up on, like, the nuances of the meanings. Uh, I, I thought, uh, like, uh, footnote 260 is an example of that um, addressing well, a rich man, time, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every time I did one of those, um, I found everything I could find. I could find. I looked for any quote that was Mingira. And then I looked at context. And then I dumped anything that didn't fit the context of the paragraph and the rest of the sentence and the chapter. And so that it made sense with what happened before, what what happened after, and Mm -hmm. didn't violate uh, any historical record. And being that I'm from this area and that my ancestors were Osage, which were the people who claimed to have built Cahokia, I really felt like this was a matter of family history and that I couldn't disappoint them. I had to make it as strong as possible. Like I said, something that if another scholar looked at it, they could say, okay, well, this is a better word, but that it didn't destroy the rest of what was being said. It just made it better just made it more consistent than the strongest, most consistent possible that I gave it. Uh, if I can interrupt here just a second, sure. Mark. I think the most important thing, uh, it wasn't just that you have to translate so you have a consistent narrative. A lot of what was in the book made no sense unless you knew American Indian culture and you knew the animals and plants and geography of North America. When you knew those things, things that made no sense to the Chinese also just started uh, falling into place like puzzle mm-hmm. pieces. And that was the key, was knowing something about uh, um, the area. And mm-hmm. being that my husband is a local, and that I very, very much love you know, this history, and he's a even bigger history buff than I am, and that we were writing for an outdoor magazine, so we already were studying about local plants and animals and everything and getting to know it and teaching our kids about it as we were raising them, especially about snakes, so that they would not hurt themselves. Uh, all of this made more and more sense. There was one scene that I looked at and I started laughing because my grandmother, who is one of my sources of Osage ancestry, used to make something on her stove. And I'm sitting there going, whoa, that's what grandma used to do when she made hominy. I said, that's exactly what I saw my grandmother doing when I was a little girl. And... And it was, this is something that you're not going to see outside of the Americas because they didn't have corn in the 1400s. I mean, that didn't come until European colonization going back and forth between America and Europe. 
And it was exactly just the way Grandma made it. And then there was another time they were making pemmican. And I've seen stuff about making pemmican, and it's exactly the way I... I mean, those two sections were like reading a cookbook. It was so exact. And I was, I'd been writing a, a cooking column on wild, wild edibles. It was exactly what I'd read about before or, or had seen. So, again, it just was too familiar. And that familiarity, let me say, that's not purple millet. That's Indian corn that looks the same. They wouldn't have known about that. But Uh there it is. If I can break in again, uh, Mark. One of the ingredients in pemmican, where you got meat and buffalo, uh, the fruit they usually put into it was persimmons. Mm -hmm. So they're talking about mixing meat and persimmon. Uh, The places you find persimmons is America and China. Mm-hmm. Those are the two countries that have persimmons. So either they were back in China or they were in America just from that one description alone. I mean, it's, it's, there's those individual nuggets, just one little description here or there. Uh, they'll mention a plant. Uh, they'll mention animals. And you realize that's enough right there to identify that you're in America. Yeah, yeah and you know, Mark, it's the little details like that that make – uh, the, the the work that you and Lori uh, are doing so, so captivating. I, I I don't know how else you you, you can explain it. There's what, just like a couple places in the world where it's documented that that's it. So it's either one or the other place we're talking about. And they were definitely not in China. <laughs> and no, no, they, they already left no, on the voyage. Yeah, nothing matched. Except here. This is the only place we all matched at the same time. You go to Mexico, there's not the gigantic river. You you go to Europe, there's not the people with headdresses like with cow horns or hairdos. Nowhere else in the world is there a hairdo like a horse's mane. And they had inter- the first person translating it said horse instead of hairdo they said head or cow's head instead of cow headdress. Those were the things I looked at and I said that that was the thing that caught my eye first was that cow headdress. I said I know a buffalo headdress. I think that's a powwow, not the underworld. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that just absolutely. That was that was the first thing. That's what caught me mm-hmm. and made me have to know. So, 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 so that was the turning point where you, know, you and Mark were pretty interested in this, um, you know, the Piasol, but the like buffalo headdress. That that, that mm-hmm. was like what really put the hooks into you to. Oh yeah. Make this a, a fifteen year well, project. Well when I saw that that paragraph with with that description of the people with the cow and the horse head, Mark will tell you that there was incoherent screaming coming out of me trying to pointing at the book going when I finally got words out is I know this. 
this is here. It has to be here. And like I said, it took us six months to get the book after that. And then, then it was just, I mean, it's like knowing there's a winning lottery ticket in your house and you want to find it. You want to, Make sure that you were right, that you remember those numbers correctly, and check them. And you go through a lot of crazy to get there, and I did. Hey, Lori, this is Barbara. Um, I, I just, so, you know, you've discovered something that is really profound, obviously. How is oh this goodness. being received? How is, it, how is it being received by this side of the ocean? I know China's celebrated, but... but what does what does it do um, to here? I mean, you, you it, it seems that your your evidence is just overwhelming. But but mm-hmm. what kind of reception are you getting from from this side of the ocean? It's like I think another researcher described uh, a man named Chow Chen, who by the way is a rocket scientist who has written <laughs> on this subject. He told us in Malaysia several years ago after Laurie was quoting Chinese sources that he said, I predict that uh, the academics will just simply not talk about you. Uh-huh. And so uh, <laughs> we were at a conference in Malaysia and was it uh, 2010? There was all kinds of criticism of some of the other presenters, uh, a lot of it unwarranted. Uh, but our name in the criticism, we, our names never appeared in the criticisms of the other presenters about the Chinese exploring the world. We manifested ourselves of an ab, as an absence. We were like Voldemort, I guess, from Harry Potter. We were oh, not to be, we were not to be named. Yeah. Um, they fought, there was a fight for three years. There was immediately after uh, Malaysia in 2010, when we spoke there, at a major conference, an international conference, there was supposed to be, just almost immediately afterwards, a publication of uh, a book containing all papers. There was a three-year fight about what would go into that book and what would be excluded. People were quitting. People were just being incredibly... I think people in Congress or running for Congress would recognize how nasty people got to each other in this big fight. And at the end of that fight, we weren't in the book. And prior to this, I had spoken to someone who I will will remain, uh, leave nameless, who I found that chapter that mentioned the Luo manuscript in. I said, well, they said, well, you know, they started asking me questions by email, and I said, well, haven't you read the original? Um, haven't you, like, looked into the original, you know, looked at it with somebody who was Chinese or whatever it took to find out what was in that original stuff? And this person became very, very angry, very, very scary, and started saying, who do you work for? Who do you work for? And the point of that, that's an academic threat because it means so I can get you fired, get your tenure revoked, make sure you don't get retirement, and all of your um, grad students are blacklisted unless they completely denounce you. And uh, so at this point, I brought about 20 or 30 people into the email chain and said, excuse me, this person is very upset and is making threats, 
And I just wanted all of you to know, which is where the Voldemort label for me came in because this person literally wrote to everyone who was included in the email chain and said, do not speak this person's name ever again. It was kind of funny to have a Harry Potter moment under those conditions. but <laughs> Better than a Spartacus time, one, I guess. Yeah, Voldemort is the bad guy this time. <laughs> I think one indicator of, of what we've actually accomplished yes. is that, uh, okay, when Laurie got the book, uh, it was, in English, it should be The Western World Voyages of the Sandbow Eunuch an by oh. an account of the Western World Voyages of the Sandbow Eunuch by a uh, person named Luol Maodong, which is a pseudonym. We prob- From what we can gather, he was probably a prince or somebody else within the palace. There's a whole Who lot of that? inside information. But the point was, it was very difficult for us to get a copy of, mm-hmm. uh, of that book because originally there was only one manuscript that survived. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a few copies uh, where they put it in the paperback form. And it, it took the intervention of, of uh, what, a Chinese admiral to get us a copy of it. That's a, that's a long story in itself. But now if you go online on the Chinese sites after we've talked for several years, the book – you know, an account of the Western world voyages of the Sandbow eunuch is widely available. So we have created a lot of interest in the Chinese world. In the book, mm-hmm. you can read it now in China. It's not hard to get. But if you go on Amazon, you can find the first half of the voyage uh, of this book. You, you see that it's a two-volume set, but you can't find the second half that mentions Feng Tu. And and we found every time we would find uh, initially every time we found a good source on something, we started finding if we mentioned it somewhere, it would disappear. There were people following along behind us. Um, it, it, I, I have when Gretel had this problem. They left a trail of breadcrumbs to find their way home, and the animals followed behind them and picked up the breadcrumbs and they didn't have a trail to go home uh there was somebody we call them the scrubbers there was somebody out there who decided that they did not want to um have this out there i went and added to a wikipedia page and first they first they took the material back off again it's supposed to be everybody add to it and then they locked me out, and they would not let me put it back in. And I didn't put anything controversial. I just mentioned this stuff. It was insane. Okay, we're not the only person to have problem with this period material. Uh, Dr. S.L. Lee, mm-hmm. uh, Mark Eddy might be familiar with him. Uh, he's done a lot of research. He's done presentations. He owns a piece of personal property that belonged to Admiral Jung Ha. It, it, by the way, it was found mm-hmm. in North Carolina. But he's very well known, very respected. He's so respected he became the the calligrapher for the Avatar cartoon series, making sure everything was accurate. He made the same complaint as we've just done, where people, anytime you start to research uh, something that was important, it started disappearing off the internet. He was very, mm-hmm. he was losing his sources. He was very concerned about this. Uh, informal censorship and, and just making things disappear so they're well, no longer available to scholars. So well, it's now, not just us. Now when I find something, I save the web page. And I make sure that I keep that paper trail 
I mean, I've got about five or six or eight different portable hard drives, and then I've got a young man that works with me who is also storing this material so that if it gets scrubbed, there is a surviving copy of that material where we found it with uh, the references of where they found it. But we've gotten well. The same, the same thing. The same thing happened to Dr. Sam with the Bosnian pyramids. He had Egyptologists come out and said, "Yeah, this is a pyramid," and they all got fired. So the fact that you're under the gun validates the authenticity of what you've got. But they can't fire us. Well, that's the thing no, about that's the streaming. True. Why the woman? Why I will say it's a woman. Uh, the other researcher who got mad at me. I mean, she got shrill. I mean, and it's very shrill to the point of incoherent in the emails. Um, She got maddest when she said, who do you work for? And I said, I'm complete. My husband and I are completely self-funded independent researchers. That's when she went completely crazy on me. And it was nasty. She said mean things, but <laughs> I don't doubt that, it. <laughs> oh, oh, we're oh, she got personal, but oh. we've been thrown out of a local archaeology society, which I'm also going to not plug here by giving its name, because um, we were harassed, and I told somebody, oh, just stuff it. And then they said that we were horrible and mean to this person after the person had been harassing us for several years and nobody shut them up. I mean, I didn't cuss at that person. I said, I was talking to somebody about the layout of Cahokia Mounds. And the person said, why don't you just be quiet? Because I have something actually important to talk to them about, which had nothing to do with archaeology. And it was like, it was yeah, just yeah, like, uh, ah. yeah, uh, you're, you're, yeah, you're uh, ruining their monopoly. Well, I'm making, they can't tell stupid Indian stories. And that makes them unhappy because they want to be smarter than the, the stupid little brown people. And I'm sorry, my family was those stupid little brown people, and they're not stupid. So, yeah. <laughs> I'll just get snippy back at them. Okay, good, good for you. So, you know, you know, we need to get back to some of the most convincing evidence that what was left from this um, voyage and you know the expedition to um, Middle America. And, and that's the Piasol and the basis for your first book, uh, Chasing Dragons. And uh-huh. you know, we need to uh, get, get you know, we, uh, Mark gave us a little uh, you know, d- descriptions of it. You know, it's uh, upstream from uh, St. Louis, uh-huh. and but but yeah. It was actually uh, documented in a mid 
19th century painting. Uh, you, you know, mm-hmm. We need to talk about th- that one, too. Yeah, Hen- Henry Lewis's painting. Uh, can I go farther back than Henry Lewis and go back to oh, okay. uh, Father Marquette? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, let's let, let's do that and work our way forward then. Okay, okay. Sixteen seventy three. Father Marquette, a Frenchman, was exploring the Mississippi River. He was the man who first explored the Mississippi. Uh, they were coming down the river. Uh, actually, they were coming down the Illinois River, which runs into the Mississippi just north of where the Piasaw is. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to read his description. Okay, Father Marquette wrote. While skirting some rocks, which by their height and length inspired awe, we saw upon one of them two painted monsters, which at first made us afraid, and upon which the boldest savages dare not long rest their eyes. They are large as a calf. They have horns on their heads like those of a deer, a horrible look, red eyes, a beard like a tiger's, a face somewhat like a man's, a body covered with scales, and so long a tail that it winds all the way around the body passing above the head and going back between the legs, ending in a fish's tail. Green, red, and black are the three colors composing the picture. Moreover, the two monsters are so well painted that we cannot believe that any savage is their author. For good painters in France would have would find it difficult to reach that place conveniently to paint them. Here is approximately the shape of these monsters as we have faithfully copied it. And then he did a sketch of these monsters, which supposedly was later lost, though we think we know where it ended up. That's another story. Um, anyway, that's what got me started on, on the original research, was just reading this passage and realizing he could have been describing Chinese dragons, which, by the way, was the emblem of the Chinese Ming Empire of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got looking over it now, I found out that just, over, just right up front, I found, uh, let's see, 11 similarities between the Piasaw and uh, the Chinese dragon emblem of the, mm-hmm. um, that the Ming Emperor used. Uh, if it's okay, I'm going to read these 11 similarities, okay? Sure. Okay, okay one, uh, the Piasaw was actually a pair of creatures, and that's typical in Chinese dragon motif. There's two of them. And uh, he did not say they were birds. Uh, which crept in later. He just described them as monsters. Okay. Uh, both sets of creatures had horns like deer. Uh, the Chinese dragon and the Piasaw both had fiery demon eyes. Both had a beard or whiskers like a tiger's. Both were covered with scales. Both were painted in green, red, and black. Okay. Now, these are imperial colors and can be seen today on Chinese New Year's dragons. Okay. Uh, both possessed long, sinuous tails long enough to wrap around their bodies. Both of their tails terminated in a fish's tail. Okay, both had human-like faces. Okay, in the Chinese emblem that was used by the Emperor Huangdi, the face was that of a magical beast called the Kirin, traditionally depicted with a human-like face. Okay, the tenth point, uh, neither, and I touched on this, neither had wings. It was an absence of wings. Okay. This would be unusual in a Western dragon. Traditionally, Chinese dragons flew without wings. Uh, you go to any, uh, any dragon emblem in uh, Europe, and they've always got wings. But these did not have wings, and the Chinese dragons did not have wings. Okay, the last thing was, uh, okay, both sets of dragons had 
highly sophisticated execution, as good as any in France, what you would expect from the technically advanced Chinese. No other pictographs that were done by the Indians were anywhere close to that. Uh, the, the, the level of execution was extremely high, and uh, the Indians said they had nothing to do with it. It's not ours. We did not paint it. And while you see very sophisticated carving and dragons and so forth in Mexico, there's nothing north of uh, Mexico that has anything close to that, like Mark said. And there's one thing that he's left out. You see pictures of the Piasaw. Now you see, like, white-tailed deer antlers. But that's not the word Father Marquette used. And a friend of ours pointed, who knew French pointed this out. He said, they're not saying the word for white-tailed deer. They're saying the word for Eurasian roe deer antlers, a roebuck, which has horns not like a white tail, which is that big, beautiful, branching rat, but more like a pronghorn antler. And that's Chinese. Yeah. So the, the Marquette described, when he said deer antlers, he was talking about, the deer that lives in China and Europe, Eurasian robots. Yeah, and, and they they were imported for fancy people to hunt on their estates in Europe. They were not everywhere in Europe. Okay, anyway, that's and that's what got we, us started. Yeah, that's where we started from. Um, where do you want us to go from there, Mark? Okay, what, um, let's see, I... Oh, Henry Lewis. I think, yeah, yeah the Lewis, Henry Lewis, uh, and uh, just, okay. you know, the, Mark, the point you made that, you know, about the uh, you know, detail about the wingless uh, uh, dragons contrasted with, you know, the, the European dragons were, you know, they're probably f- flying over the, uh, turret of the castle, and you got the you know, damsel in distress up there. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. Uh, the, the, there's uh, in, in the use of like blue, green, and black uh, co- mm-hmm. colors for the dragons. All, all, all that just seems so culturally specific that it, it just couldn't be. The, the artist couldn't be from just. Uh, anywhere around the world, it'd have to be from one place. Oh yeah. But, yeah. but uh, okay. So, so, so let's uh, uh, you know jump uh, from uh, Marquette's uh, 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 journal descriptions to the Henry Lewis uh, painting from the 1850s. So yeah. One last thing on Marquette. If he'd seen wings, he would have had wings. Mm-hmm. But okay. yeah, now for um, Henry Lewis. Okay, I'm trying. I got to think a little bit. Henry Lewis was an American artist. Uh, he was good enough. He's got a painting in the art museum in St. Louis. Okay, he was he was an excellent artist. Uh, he did a book in the 1850s. Uh, it was published in German, in Germany, but in English it was the Illustrated Mississippi Valley. Okay. And he painted pictures of all different scenes and sites all up and down the Mississippi River. Any place that was important or beautiful, he had a painting of it in a book, and he would describe the area and the stories and all that. 
And the idea was that uh, they were selling it in Germany with the hopes that a lot of these Germans would move over to the United States, okay? Mm-hmm. And it and It, it worked. There's lots over. of Germans in this area. Herman, uh, Missouri. It's, it's very German in, in our part of the country. But uh, Bush beer. Yeah, okay. Uh, we are digressing here. Okay, but uh, he, he uh, about the time this book came out, a U.S. senator named James Semple from Illinois up and bought the property that the Piasaw was on, and he destroyed it. He he founded a little village. Or he, he laid out a village near the Piasaw. It was on a bluff, and he sold building lots in this little town he had uh, uh, platted out. And the deal was, you got a free building lot to put your house on if you knock down part of the bluff over there where the Piasaw was. And use it for material. You could get, so you, as long as you use that bluff for material to build your house, you got your, your property for free. And within a couple of years, the, the, the Piasaw bluff was gone. The locals didn't know why this guy had destroyed or anything, but it was gone. It was gone. a tourist attraction. They were making money off it. They were not amused. Yeah. After it was destroyed, he started selling the lots. You didn't get them for free anymore. You had to, to buy the lots. Uh-huh. But now we thought, that's a really odd thing. Uh-huh. But then we, we got checking out. We found out that the, the, the Senator Semple was very strong into manifest destiny. He even wrote speeches about he's not going to put up with any other claims on North America. That does? White, Anglo-Saxon, Protestants are the only people who can, who are justified and anointed by God to own this whole place. And those red people are getting in the way, so they should move over. Yeah. So you, you get an idea where his attitude was. He wasn't But uh, So as... As we can figure, we, we found out, too, that he had connections to a, uh, a French map maker who had worked on mapping the Mississippi River. Nicholas who, Nicolet. Uh, Nicholas Nicolet, who was educated in France. Now, where it gets interesting is that the official French maps in the mid-18th century, in the 1700s, showed the West Coast and what's Washington State now and parts of Canada and stuff. Uh, the, the French map showed it as a Chinese colony. They said the French maps had the Chinese on the West Coast or had been on the West Coast, okay? And through his connection with the map maker, he would have uh, known that there was a Chinese claim. There was a possible Chinese claim on North America. So any evidence that supported that claim had to be destroyed. Nobody gets this continent but us mm-hmm. is the essence of manifest destiny. And it gets stranger. There's a mention of the two-winged god of thunder. And they have been going up that river that we know is the St. Lawrence. And right where they would hit the two falls of Niagara Falls, they mention this. And it's like two wings off of a central stone pillar in that book by Luol Madung. And the first in explorers took back with them what they called a Tartaric pillar. And you look in Luo, they left a marker pillar right by those falls. The Europeans found it right by Niagara Falls. And guess where it went in Paris? 
And where? Guess where Nicholas Nicolay went to school? Same place. Mm. So he knew that pillar existed. He knew that had come from uh, America. He knew that had come from Niagara Falls. Mm. And he was drawing maps that said the Chinese were here. Uh, one thing we need to mention, too, uh, we may be, is to realize how this was all interconnected. Uh, okay, you had this, the uh, St. Lawrence River. You had Niagara Falls on the St. Lawrence River. The French and others later, they would use the St. Lawrence River to get to the Great Lakes. And from the Great Lakes, they would go down, uh, they'd go into Lake Michigan, down the Illinois River to the Mississippi. That's how they accessed the Mississippi Valley. So you could go from the, uh, from, like I said, from Niagara Falls, go into the Great Lakes, and go everywhere you wanted to go in the middle of the United uh, States, or in, in the middle of the continent. Who need, don't need no sticky mm-hmm. super highways. They had a fantastic natural highway, the rivers. Okay. And where the Illinois River runs into the Mississippi River near St. Louis, uh, the land is pretty flat. But as you go south, just a couple of miles from the intersection of the two rivers, and this is there's, the first there's place bluffs. And the first really impressive bluff where the river's below the river connection is where the Piasaw was put. It was in the, the best position you could imagine for, for seeing it, for being seen by everybody who, who went up and down the river system. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty flagrant claim on the, uh, on the territory. Uh, and by the way, I wasn't, we weren't the first ones to decide it was Chinese. There were researchers in the, eight, in the 1900s and the late 1800s who also concluded it was uh, Chinese. In fact, some of them said it was obviously Chinese. So it, and in fact, there was some jade found in the area by one of them, and he thought that was uh, proof that the Chinese had been there. So, uh, you know, we're in pretty solid ground on that. Uh, but Senator Semple really did a good job of destroying the evidence. Uh, what's interesting about Senator Semple is he had a son named Eugene, and uh, uh, back in the, what was it, the 1870s or so, Eugene became governor of Washington Territory, which is what was on the French map as uh, the Chinese colony. So here it is. This guy had destroyed the Piasaw. His son goes out west, becomes a governor of an area which he would have known was Chinese at one time. Because of Nicolet. And his son, the only thing his son is known for as governor is how badly he treated the Chinese. That's the only thing he's known for. He was so bad, he let rioters kill Chinese in what was Washington Territory. It finally got to the point he said, I'm not going to protect these people at all. And the army finally had to step in, ignore the governor, Governor Eugene Semple, and protect the Chinese who lived in that area. So he was the... the, Oh, they won't assimilate anyway. He was much like his father. Just, just run them off. Okay. He was at... Those were his words. So they won't assimilate. You know, why bother? He had to have gotten that attitude or perhaps knowledge from somewhere. So it was like yeah. father, like son. They were both, they were both protecting manifest destiny. Yeah. Okay. And all, all, um, all disagreeing evidence must be silenced. 
if it doesn't agree with how I see it, destroy it, silence it, make it disappear, make it invisible, and never mention it ever existed. Sounds familiar to me. Yeah. Okay. But um, you know, one of the uh, little bits of information that can't be um, uh, contradicted that uh, happens in uh, appears in the translation you did. Mm-hmm. And and a really interesting scene, and then it, it's also in uh, in the uh, Henry Lewis's painting is mm-hmm. the uh, so, you know, a couple hundred uh, three hundred year old uh, pine tree on top of the hill above the um, Piasol. Uh, what? So uh, let's d- discuss that scene from "To the Gates of Feng Tu and the pa- mm-hmm. uh, painting. Uh, that, that's uh, a- another key, key key piece of evidence. Mhm. Yeah. Um, there was. It, well, it's one thing. They were. There's a lot of symbolism in a pine tree in China. You know, it's about uh, just it, it's about memory and fidelity to what you're doing and so on. And so when they put in something important, especially a memorial to the dead, they plant a pine tree. And you see in the Lewis painting, you know, they put in this little seedling there. You see in the Lewis painting, and people don't realize it, the wind is always blowing up and down the Mississippi. And you see this tree that is bent by having been pressed upon by this constant flow of wind. And it's in the painting. The planting of it's in the book. And it's the size and gnarled shape that that much time would have bent a tree into that kind of shape. And it's it's right there. Another point that matches. And it was one of the things that was just really cool that we found in, in, in the painting when we looked at it. And you know, then uh, over the hill from from this pine tree, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, next to the mural with the two-headed wingless dragon, there's the bone cave. Uh, yeah, we need to uh, discuss. You know, can't can't forget that feature as well. So. Um, you know, t- tell us a little bit about that. Well, in the the um, stories that were popularized about it, there was this gigantic flying monster 
kind of a primeval rodent, came down and ate people and was carrying people off, and it took all of its bones of its prey and dragged them into this cave, and there was thousands and thousands of bones. But, uh, about all you can say about that is no, because original records of it um, don't describe it that way. Why don't you tell them about okay. the cave? Uh, there was a small cave um, near the Piasaw site. Um, it was interesting because I have a, a drawing of it from uh, an early American book, and it shows a um, red circle painted above the cave entrance. Okay, and uh-huh. from other sources, I found out the only thing they ever found buried in the cave where they found a man's skull. Mm-hmm. which was interesting. So there was some sort of burial there, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because the, the, the picture that shows the cave with the uh, red circle above it shows Indian mounds on top of the bluff there. That's where the Indians buried their people. You wouldn't bury them down on the um, level of the on cave the because bank. it flooded. You, you, your graves would be washed out. So uh, we suspected that was not a native burial in that cave. And then in Laurie's translation, somewhere in the general area of the pine tree story, it said that there was a uh, chapter uh, maybe okay there was a there was a circle painted above the burial cave of an engineer named what was it Lou Lou uh, who was uh, the man in charge of creating or constructing the Piasaw uh, picture, and he died during construction, and they buried him in a cave next to the Piasaw. And the circle was an emblem saying. That pretty much means faithful to the end. And so he was faithful till he died to creating this huge mural. And they talked about how this, that they had to coat the cliff face with uh, a sealant, uh, like the cement or a plaster, because it kept crumbling. And if you know anything about limestone cliffs along the Missouri, they crumble. I mean, there's constantly rock falling down. And we found one photograph that is at the back of um, Chasing Dragons. First edition. That you see this rock with this paw. Because you can see faint traces of, like, claws or something on there, just barely scratched as if they'd been traced on there and then painted more than carved. And at a corner of this rock, is a bit of this surface had peeled off, and you can see natural stone, and it's obviously fissured like the cliffs around, the layered limestone cliffs in this area and around Elsa. Look. So we figured that's a piece of the Piasaw that was still around there. And I saw one photograph of it, and I should have taken a photograph of this photograph at the time, but there were two men standing there in this rock that you can't comprehend from my photograph at the end of the book what size it is, that this picture was so big that the rock that this picture is on is about waist high to the two men standing to either side of it. And they're grown adults of normal size. So that was a big picture. Mm-hmm. As big as um, Marquette is describing as big as Lewis shows 
in his painting. Okay, and that was uh, found in, uh, what was it, the Elza Museum, just a few hundred yards from the Pius mm-hmm. Hall. They couldn't really tell us what the photo was about, but it was important enough that somebody about 100 years ago took it. Um, okay, so I hope we have the bone cave covered enough. There was a burial next to the Pius Hall. It has a Chinese emblem over it. It's in an American source, and it's in a Chinese source describing the same location. That's pretty powerful evidence. And it matched. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you look at um, the Piasol location on Google Earth, you can see that one side of the excavation is very straight and goes very, it's it's the side that goes farthest back. And this cave is clearly um, in the natural fissure in the rock because there's a bit of a, you can see a bit of a crack above it in the, the illustration showing the cave. And they that would have been the easiest place to start digging out and it probably was already destroyed by the time henry lewis did his painting because they don't show that side of the painting i mean that side of the piasol and they had dug back along that build what was it the lindell hotel uh they built a yeah a hotel on lindell street in st louis out of the uh out of the stone from the cave sadly it no longer yeah. exists so yeah it burned down during the civil war so there's not even a trace of a trace of it which is a real shame um you know we overlooked something mark uh, some of the most sure, exciting evidence okay uh this has to do with lewis painting mm-hmm. okay we we looked at the lewis painting uh now what we found it after, no, I take that back. We found it before we went to China, didn't we? Yes, we did. Okay. We found that but, painting, but that's okay. how you found Elsa. Okay. She, Laurie took some pictures at the Nanjing Boatyard. We were giving a tour of the area uh, during the time that, you know, we were giving the paper in 2005. Nanjing Boatyard's interesting. It's on the uh, Yangtze River. But uh, they had the ribs, they had excavated the ribs of a ship that it was burned and not completed. It was as big as a football field. Just unbelievable. The ribs are sticking out, and it's like a football field there. It was eerie because the dig of digging out that keel was so fresh, you could smell the smoke. Mm-hmm. The 600, nearly 600-year-old 600 smoke from when they burned that ship okay. down to the keel. Okay. And while we were there, Laurie took a picture of a stone memorial of some sort that had some dragons on it. Because it was cool. Yeah. Okay. We got home and examined that some more and, and found out what that was. It was a memorial set up by Chinese sailors after these expeditions to commemorate their expedition. And it was two dragons. Expedition. It was two dragons wrapped around each other. And in the middle, there was a Chinese symbol called the precious pearl, where the dragons were holding the pearl. And there's, there's a, like a fire, a circular fire with flames coming up around the pearl and the whole thing is put inside of a, a flat topped arch it looks a bit like a cross section of a loaf of bread okay now we got thinking we looked at that and and looked at the piasol picture and it took us a while to work it all out but if you were to take henry lewis's painting or copy of it if you were to put a like a clear transparency over it and then get a marker and trace out the more important parts of the lewis painting um and then take that transparency and lay it over a uh, picture of the Nanjing Memorial, you would realize that the details are the same. There are, I mean, down to the, there's a lot of destruction. A lot of the uh, Lewis painting was destroyed uh, before he, he, he made the Piasol had been damaged. But there was enough 
you could overlay one on top of the other and realize they're the same thing. I mean, down to little details. The precious pearl with the fireball and the dragons and the general shape and all that, it was the same thing. So that's when we really got excited. We realized that there was a match. I mean, and when you get to that point, you can't deny it anymore, which is why I think we upset people so much. The Lewis painting and the memorial in Nanjing, China, are the same thing down to little details. We had external verification of a physical artifact. Anyway, that was just, just mind-blowing. And it, I still, just every time I think about that, the details. Some of the details misled us because uh, the precious pearl in the center, uh, some vandal before Lewis had painted a smiley face on there, and that misled us some. But we finally figured it out. And uh, there I were, woke up one morning. I just kind of stood up straight in bed saying, wait a second, I know what I know. I didn't know I knew this, but I know something. And it was at that point I started making a, a recreation where I put that drawing and everything together and put it on a light box and started picking out tiny, tiny details. And you can see these faint ghosts of those that wraps around the two bodies wrapped around each other and everything. And it's the three times that, that another witness said it was three times. And there was, uh, it looked like feet. Looked like an animal's feet at the bottom of the page, but once you overlaid it on top of the Nanjing Memorial, you realize those were bits and pieces of some seal characters. So there would have been a message of some sort, a statement at the at the bottom of the Piasov in uh, archaic in, in old Chinese seal characters. So even the feet of the thing matched up with uh, mm-hmm. some of the writing on the memorial. Well, let's incredible. put it this way, Doctor Lee. Uh, when I put up that recreation where I matched where the feet had been in the Lewis painting with characters that were in a block of characters in that capstone that I was using to base my reconstruction on. I matched the feet with those two words, and Dr. Lee turned and said, how'd you find that? How'd you know that? And I had put together a fade-through between the two pictures and he just stood there for the longest time. I think he just almost cried. He he just stood there and stared at that. And he he, he 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 was that man is unflappable. He is the image you, you talk about the stereotype of inscrutable and serene Chinese um wise man elderly gentleman and he's it and I blew his mind I he was stunned and it was it blew my mind I I mean I couldn't he just he was so impressed that I was overwhelmed Okay, uh, Mark, there's one more mystery about the Piasol while we're still talking about the mm-hmm. Piasol painting. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Okay, the uh, I gave you the original colors, red, green, uh, what was it? red, green, black, okay? Yeah. But uh, there was evidence, there was, in fact, there was a statement, somebody describing the Piasol in the mid-1800s, how it was had turned blue and it shined when it was wet. 
Yes. After a rain, it said okay. the thing shined blue. And we got uh, checking into that. We found out that chemistry. Chemistry, yes. That cobalt-based paints turn blue if if the other pigment is worn out. And it, will it could fade. be a green or red or something. If it's cobalt-based, it will eventually fade and be just blue. And it's weird. Cobalt coloring is actually a type of uh, finely ground cobalt glass, which is blue. Uh-huh. And so that after all the pigments wear away, you have a coating, a thin layer of blue glass. And, of course, if glass gets wet, it's going to shine. And that's exactly what was described at Piasaw. In addition, we have a picture of a, of a uh, or it's another another Chinese creature uh, in, in China uh, that's outside. It's been outside since Ming times, and it is also turned blue. The parts is, is part green, but a lot of it has turned blue where the uh, original uh, green pigment wore off. So we have evidence from a. Uh, a remaining artifact in China that a cobalt-painted artifact left outside for several hundred years will turn blue, and that's exactly what was described tribute in the color. Oh, we have any, the tribute list. I don't know if we had time for well, that. But that's that, your that, area. While they were in Italy, they one of the things they got from the Italians was stone carving tools and linseed oil or olive oil things that you would have used to put together such a painting. And we know that they put markers everywhere they went. And if you do a longitude and latitude check, this spot was as far as you could get without away from China without getting closer again, traveling in any direction. Farther than that, you would have been closer to China than you were, than you were right there on the Mississippi. They wanted to mark their ultimate achievement of reaching, as their mandate said, the absolute farthest spot you can get. That was where they would have put it. That was the place thick enough, wide enough, obvious enough that the monument would endure. So it lasted until the Indians got guns and then they started shooting it up and then, after it was damaged, We're then busy. it was finished off by uh, Senator Semple. But we, it, it's incredible. I mean, we know what the original colors were. We know what chemicals were used in the paint. And we know where they got their tools. It's really incredible. And that ties into the men's book, uh, 1434, which talks about the uh, Chinese visiting Italy. So there's multiple sources for them being in Italy. And there are paintings to, of them in Italy. Yeah, there's a 1421 world map showing California on the Doge's palace ceiling, which is impossible. The ceiling of his audience chamber. Okay. So where he would have had that party in chapter 86. Yeah. Anyway, there's just there's just so much information that mm-hmm. uh, you know we can't get it out in, yeah. into ours. It's just an incredible amount of data. Um, and we keep finding more. And you keep, what it's like a, a few weeks ago, I was doing, okay, we're doing a second edition of Chasing Dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a publisher uh, who has it. But while researching it, I was doing uh, uh, research on some of the uh, uh, French explorers that came down to Mississippi mm-hmm. after 
uh, Marquette, and I know I found one of them, uh, a, a LaSalle journal, which is not very well known. Um, anyway, LaSalle stopped. Uh, what was it? The junction of the Ohio River and the Mississippi River, south of where we live. And there was just a, 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 a like a, a passing remark. I don't think anybody much noticed it, but it said that he said that uh, some in his party of Frenchmen were saying that if if you turned here and went up the Ohio River, there was something Chinese up the Ohio River, mm-hmm. which I thought was just kind of it, it just like everybody had missed that. But the the explorer said there's something up the Ohio River that's Chinese, and that's in addition to the pious. Uh, there, there have been some Chinese artifacts found here. Okay, so it's, cool. it's all there. It's all there. Just a matter of people don't want to admit it. Because it invalidates all the things that they looked at for their doctoral thesis and messes with the book sales of the books they wrote on their doctoral thesis on somebody else's doctoral thesis. On somebody else's, on somebody else's, yeah. on somebody Though we have had a few people lately shake their head up and down, yes, we're talking about this while we're we're doing some uh, talks. So there, are, you know, what is it? Science progresses one people at a time, or something like that. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's going to take a while to change to change the, the paradigm, but uh, the the materials out there, there's no there's no doubt. There, there's mm-hmm. other evidence. Uh, that we don't have time to touch on, but yeah. uh, hopefully it's going to be in our second edition, which will be out at some point in the well, next few months. When we were in Minnesota uh, a couple of years back, I had a chance to say to a member of one of the tribes in the general area of the uh, Great Lakes, and he, you know, up in Michigan, Upper Peninsula. Upper Peninsula. And he wept. I said, I have a chance to give the ancestors back their name. And and he wept. It, it, it was something that was such a piece of his heart. And I know that in China, they know their ancestry back 100 generations. I have a Chinese friend who knows she's descended from Confucius. Uh but I know that there are people out there still saying, and then Cousin Bo went off on these ships and never came back, and we have no idea where he went. That in China, this is a chance for them to say, now we know where our missing people went. Now we, 500 years, you know, we know, finally. Where our lost boys, our lost sons and daughters and, and people went when they never came home. Okay. Okay. So, and, and, oh, hey, uh, Mark and Lori, we're uh, approaching three to four minutes left. And I, I want, you know, the audience to be able to know, you know, the book titles, where where they could find uh, you know your 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 books. Do you have upcoming appearances? Uh, just let everyone know. Well, contact information for us can be found in the back of Chasing Dragons, and we're per- presently working with what Talisman Press. Talisman Press and on uh, a second edition of Chasing Dragons with a lot of new information. 
um, you can contact us that way. You can contact us through Gavin Menzies' um, website. 1421 website. The 1421 website. Uh, you can contact us through my author's page on Amazon. And we would love to come and talk to anyone, anywhere. We would love to hear from people who have that strange thing they found in, in when Grant and Dad plowed the field, these odd artifacts that make no sense. We would love to hear about them and maybe give people uh, information that says, okay, this is why this is where it is. Okay. Uh, uh, I want to be very specific, uh, Mark. Uh, sure. The, the present book is Chasing Dragons, The True History of the Piasaw, P-I-A-S-A. Uh, we actually found out that Piasaw was actually Paiju, which is a Chinese word, but we're not gonna, we don't have time for that. But to get It'll it right. It'll be in the new book. Yeah. Our uh, last name is an odd spelling. It's N-I-C-K-L-E-F-S. So if you look up mm-hmm. Chasing Dragons or Piasaw and N-I-C-K-L-E-F-S, you should be able to find it on Amazon. Okay? And the big monster book is To the Gates of Feng Tu, and it's F-E-N-G-T-U. And you put that in there, and Nicholas, you'll get the I think that if you look up one, you'll get a link to the other. Okay. Um, both, both are uh, thought-provoking books. I, I, I really enjoyed them. Um, you know, I'm glad to recommend them to uh, you know the listeners. It, it, it is worth uh, ch- checking in into uh, you, you, know, you make some very convincing uh cases that uh, you know, uh we haven't uh been told our full history well, I'm it's glad, yeah i'm glad that we're able to use our forum to give you a platform to discuss it 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 was just really a very thought-provoking show and um you know uh, we'll have to have you uh return and and keep us updated about when uh you know chasing dragons uh is released in a revised or or the expanded edition and uh you know just tell us more about the new information that is included in the second edition. Got to, <clears throat> got to say good night, Mark. Oh, okay. It's, it's time. Hey, th- thank you, Mark and Lori. Uh, we have four great shows next week. Uh, and enjoy the week, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>